Welcome to the Mixtape with Scott. Uh, my name is Scott Cunningham. I'm a professor at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and it is my uh, pleasure to introduce to you a wonderful uh, economist <clears throat> uh, that is my age, kind of class of 1994 uh, high school, uh, Caitlin Knowles-Myers. Uh, Caitlin Myers is a professor at Middlebury College up in Vermont, uh, she's a co-author of mine. Uh, she comes uh, in a lot of ways. She fits with my season-long uh, interest in the labor economists, and she's sort of a modern labor economist. You know she's a labor economist because she's got a publication in the Journal of Labor Economics uh, and some other traditional labor journals. And in my, in my mind, you don't get to be uh, called a labor economist if you don't have a, a jolly. Um, so uh, she studies a lot of traditional Becker type, Becker type type projects, like issues on gender, uh, issues on discrimination, uh, issues on gender. Uh, but her evolution as a researcher, for many of you that know her, has moved towards uh, topics very at the center of gender related health and specifically uh, reproductive policies and abortion technology and uh, it specifically as well as contraceptive technology. Um, she is the, uh, I'm going to let her give you the full name of her, uh, of her title. Well, I guess I can do it right now. It's the John G. McCullough Professor of Economics at Middlebury College and the Director of the Middlebury Initiative for Data and Digital Methods. Um, I'll just say also, Caitlin is, uh, one of my, I, I said this, it, it's hard when you, it's hard when you know a lot of people that you think to yourself, well, you're my favorite person uh, in the profession. And then you meet another one and you're like, well, you're also my favorite. When you're a kid, you have to have best friends. So you have to rank them. And when you're an adult, nobody makes you rank them. Sorry, nobody made you rank them as a kid either, but I did have best friends. But Caitlin is a, just an absolutely, she's brilliant. Uh, as an economist, and it's going to come come across all of her unique talents and skills. She is unrivaled, though, of being just a genuinely beautiful human being and a, a warm, kind, loving, and extremely funny. Uh, that kind of intelligence-infused humor is basically my love language, and uh, I love just being around her and talking to her. And the great thing about the great thing about Zoom is is I get to see her. She lives she lives up in the north and I live, you know, in God's country in the south. So uh she's she would probably it, she might not agree with that, but she'll at least a part of her will go, well, that's that's unfair, Scott, that you, you've put me in a tough jam between the, to choose between Middlebury in, in uh, Vermont and Texas. So she'll, she can see both sides of the argument. So without any further ado, let me introduce you to Caitlin Myers, uh, professor of economics at Middlebury College. And I hope you enjoy this interview. If you like it, this is the one to share. Uh, this is the one to tell people about. It's a very inspiring. It's even one to tell people that uh, tell your mom or tell your sister, or your brother, uh, or your, um, you know, the, the person that cuts your hair, anyone, because it's just such a humanizing, uh, it's the human story uh, that you're going to hear with Caitlin. So thanks very much. And I'll see you in a minute. See you in about two seconds.
Well, it is a genuine pleasure. It's always a pleasure to have any guests, but this is like even more so uh, because this is a uh, friend of mine, uh, Caitlin Myers. Caitlin, uh, for will you, for the sake of the listener, tell us your, uh, you know, your your title and where you're uh, employed? Sure. Although, do you want like the long endowed chair title? Yeah, or? I want the whole. I want the whole thing. You want the whole thing? All right. Yeah. Uh, I am Caitlin Myers, the John G. McCullough Professor of Economics at Middlebury College. I'm also the director of the Middlebury Initiative for Data and Digital Methods. Awesome. How long did that take you to practice all saying that in one? That might be the first time I've ever gotten it out. In you got one. it out. Nice. In one. Yeah, I'm pretty proud. Awesome. You know, you're. I'm trying to think if I've ever met anyone like you with this kind of double good luck where your first name and your last name is probably misspelled constantly. Uh, you know, so is that right? Is there like a, is there a, distribu a distribution of misspellings? Absolutely. Everybody wants to make my first name involve K's and Y's. Uh, yes. And I feel pretty strongly that that's uh, now I'm going to go with like controversial hot takes from the very beginning. The Caitlin is not spelled with a K or a Y. Right. Uh, and then I get an extra E added to Myers all the time. Absolutely. So let's, let's set the record straight. Let's right now. How do you spell your name? I spell Caitlin the way Dylan Thomas, the Irish poet's wife spelled Caitlin, who I somehow got named after, uh, which is C-A-I-T-L-I-N and Myers is M-Y-E-R-S. Oh, you sound like you come from good people. Your parents, your parents <laughs> are dark are good people. people. <laughs> okay. What's it? So here's icebreaker. Tell me a vacation that you took as a little kid with your family that you still have, that you've thought about maybe recently. You kind of think about it every now and then. You know, it, we didn't take many vacations. There were a lot of children, a lot of going back and forth between parents. But when I was in eighth grade, my older sister and I somehow convinced my father that it would be a really good idea to put five kids in the back of a Nissan Sentra oh, and man. drive eight or nine hours to reach a rainbow gathering in Vermont. What's a rainbow Which is this gathering? kind of it's this gathering, this like hippie gathering, this the rainbow family. And I don't know what my dad was thinking that this, you know, like that he went along with this uh, thing that we convinced him to do. You but as soon as we got that? there, my, my older sister and I basically just disappeared and had like three or four days of fun. Um, I, I remember it fondly. And it was the one and only time I'd been to Vermont before uh. I moved here for a job. What the heck's the Rainbow Family? What is that? Oh, you should just you should just Google it. I don't think I, I can even wait. begin. <laughs> great, that is a great. Just mess. think hippies. That's yeah. that's what I've got for you. You got a great. Your dad sounds like he's willing to just you know do whatever. He's not he's, really. It was like the one. I think it was the. I hope he doesn't listen to this. It might be the one time <laughs> he had fun or attempted to have fun with children. But I think he. Uh, he got stuck with the little children and then the older children just disappeared. And just disappeared. We random. never had another vacation again. <laughs> He's like, that's it. I don't trust any of y'all. I'm not going to babysit your siblings and y'all are just going to disappear. Well, so tell me, where'd you grow up? I grew up in a lot of places. They were all south of the Mason-Dixon line. So we've got uh, we've got accents in somewhat common, Scott. But I, you're going to get like the whole story now. So I was born on a dark and stormy night 
in Shreveport, Louisiana. And then my family moved to West Virginia, where we lived in a few places, mostly Burnsville, which is a, a town of about 500 uh, in Braxton County, right in the middle of West Virginia. And then after that, my parents split up and my dad moved to a, an unincorporated holler in West Virginia that had 27 people in it. Oh, wow. um, my family was seven of those people. Um, and my mom moved down to LaGrange, Georgia, which is on the Georgia-Alabama border. And I did a lot of my, 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 I did, went to high school, middle school and high school in LaGrange. And then- LaGrange is that little town. No, LaGrange is where your mom was? LaGrange, yeah, sorry. It's a complicated story. I basically was going back and forth between a town on the Georgia-Alabama border, which was like a, a town where uh, the, the textile milling industry was dying. It was very, uh, in, in, serious economic trouble at the time uh, and going back and forth between that town on the Georgia, Alabama border and very rural West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you're going back and forth, but you do high school just in Georgia. I did high school just in Georgia at doing summers with your dad? high school. You're doing summers with your dad. Um, I stopped. I actually, I stopped seeing him for a few summers in high school. So I was mostly in Georgia in high school, but yeah, that was the, that was the idea. Wow. 27 people. How old were you there? How old were you when you were in that little town? So we were in that holler. Um, let me think. So my parents split up when I was nine. And from when I was about nine to about probably 13, I think, uh, my dad and uh, my stepmom and and half and step siblings were living in the holler. And, uh, and then they moved uh, to upstate New York to Allegheny, uh, which is a small town in New York. But I didn't spend as much time there. Oh, Okay. Okay. Wow. Were those good years living in that little teeny tiny place? Um, were they good? I don't even know if that's one of the, the criteria and I might evaluate them. I think they were really, really interesting. I like the, I like looking back on the experiences that I had and the people that I knew. And I, I have a lot of really fond memories and there's a lot that I like about small towns and rural areas. And so yeah. for me as an adult, um, I, I knew that I was really not a city person mm. and I, I knew that I wanted to look for a job in a, in a rural area. Yeah. And that's why Vermont was very appealing to me. So what did your, what did your mom and dad do for a living? Yeah. So my, my dad is a really interesting person. Um, he grew up uh, poor in inner city Cleveland. He s applied to and got into MIT and so like left. Um, and he rode his bike there from Cleveland. That is how he got to Boston. Um, but he that? didn't. That seems far. It, it is far. Um, <laughs> but he he dropped out, I think, in his first year. And he moved down to New Orleans with my mom, who also dropped out of college. And they were living in New Orleans, um, going to the University of New Orleans at some point to try to, you know, start making that up. And my dad was like painting houses and and digging graves. And my mom was going to college. And then my dad, um, in some ways, is like a, a really interesting success story. He was he did very well at the University of New Orleans, and he got into medical school. And mm. went to medical school uh, at LSU in Shreveport. And when he got out, he, I, I think it was through scholarships, actually. I think, it, do you remember that show Northern Exposure where yeah. um, the doctor gets sent to the rural area for a scholarship? So that, 
Um, I think it was the deal with my dad because we ended up in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia, where he was the only medical provider and his office was in the basement, the rather, I really distinctly remember the kind of musty smell. It was in the basement of a church that was no longer, I think, in use as a church that the Lions Club owned and that they, um, you know, were, they were trying to get healthcare into this really underserved area um, where, you know, the nearest provider was an hour's drive away. And so he like was operating out of the basement of this church. Um, so it was it was really interesting. Like when you say, you know, I'm the daughter of a doctor, it was not necessarily your standard uh, upper middle class upbringing of the daughter of a doctor. You know, I'm in very wow. rural West Virginia going to public schools and my, my parents split up and I mostly lived with my mom after nine who worked in the business office of a small liberal arts school. Um, mm. Uh, you know, and we we moved back to Georgia because there was family there. So I was I was near extended family. Wow, wow, wow. So so what did you when you were little, maybe like before high school, what did you when you thought to yourself what you wanted to be when you grow up, grew up or if that ever crossed your mind, what did you want to be when you grew up? I, I'm going to tell you an embarrassing story. Um, I'll tell you, too, actually, they're very re related. Uh, so the first, do you remember the Sears wish book catalogs? Do you ever get those? They're like the yeah. big, thick, glossy catalogs. Mm -hmm. So living in really rural West Virginia, like I very rarely went shopping. Very, like, There was nothing near us. It was like an hour away. And if an adult was driving to a grocery store an hour away, they mostly didn't want to take a kid anyway. So I, I didn't get out much. And, you know, there's one convenience store in our town and that was it. Um, and so when the Sears catalog would arrive, particularly the, the Christmas one. It was like this huge thing. And I still have this um, binder that I made in the third grade where I was cutting out all the pictures from the Sears catalog and also the JCPenney. I had both catalog of like how I wanted my life to be and pasting them in. And I had an entire section of office equipment, like typewriters <laughs> and copying machines. And then what I thought would be like super awesome I called them at the time secretary outfits. And my goal in life was to be a secretary because I thought that just sounded so glamorous. And also I really like typing. And so that oh, was like, yeah. and then fast forward 10 years, um, I, I'll, I'll summarize going to college by saying it felt a little bit like a miracle, but I, I was going to college. I left LaGrange. I was at Tulane University. I was on a full scholarship as I was thrilled to be there and terrified. And um, I went to a, a party my like first month I was there of my freshman year and everybody was talking about what they wanted to do in life. And everybody was like, I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a diplomat. I want to be a doctor. And I was like, I would really like to have a job with a salary of at least 30,000 a year and health insurance. <laughs> and it was like, you know, like the music stops and everybody just stares at you. And they're like, that is the most boring dream. I'm like, like a secretary would be really nice. <laughs> so awesome. like I never, even throughout college, I did not envision uh, going to graduate school or certainly not being an economist or mm. none of it. None of it was on my radar at all. I wanted health insurance. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause why? Because you, with your mom and your dad that you were with your mom in particular, you, you did 
it was pretty touch and go a little bit. My mom struggled and, you know, she didn't, she had a, she had safety net. She had local family who could be a safety net, but she was struggling. It was really hard to make ends meet. Um, my dad was not, uh, like a big part of my life for many years, wasn't always in the picture and, and certainly wasn't your standard doctor either. Um, and I would say it was a, it was a, it was a, it's a complicated socioeconomic picture to paint because on the one hand, um, I never, I never worried about eating for instance. Mm. Um, but we were stressed about money. And when I went to college and people talked about things like summer camps and piano lessons, that was all like very foreign to me. Um, I, I never did anything like that. Um, so I don't know. It was, it was somewhere in between. It was, I guess it was a complicated story, right? It wasn't like an upper middle-class suburban uh, coastal family type of story, but also um, we had, we had some resources to fall back on. And, th and the other thing I'll say we had is that um, I just, I just read all the time, mm -hmm. like all the time. And for me, when I think about my childhood, like kind of the defining, the thing that I think of is just being holed up reading books eight hours a day. That's that, that was what I did. And it was when, when you were little or when you were even in high school. Yeah, both. Yeah. Always. What, what kind of stuff were you reading? Everything. I would just go to the library. So um, when we lived in West Virginia, I would go to the Burnsville Public Library, which was not large. It was um, like just one small room. Mm -hmm. And I read like by the time they moved out of there, I was about 13. I had read probably most of the books in that room. Oh but I, I'll confess this is not intellectual at all. Um, I was particularly interested in the romance novel section. I read all of those. Yeah. And then I moved on to fantasy. I love Piers Anthony and Orson Scott Card. Uh, I read a lot of sci-fi. I was big into Heinlein and Asimov with actually perhaps not a very critical eye. And then when I got to Georgia, I decided, you know, I had kind of, I wanted, I wanted to live a life of the mind with health insurance, but like I was always a reader. And mm -hmm. I then I remember in eighth grade, I read like Madame Bovary and Anna Karenina. And did I understand them? Mm -hmm. Ish. I, I read Madame Bovary again recently and thought, oh, yeah, eighth grade me did not really understand everything this had to say about being a woman, <laughs> marriage. Uh, but right. Oh, that's so great. But it was all fiction, uh, I will say. I mean, I read some nonfiction, but my passion was all fiction. Okay. I was not again, I was not reading The Wealth of Nations. Yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, so it's a town of 27, though, when you're in West Virginia and you're going to yeah. that. I mean, you know, there's no in 27, seven of them are us. Us. So you see them plenty. So there's you're going you're just finding the library to be just a wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful and the library was about I think, <clears throat> nine miles away. I mean, we, my sister and I would ride our bike to it, um, oh. but it was it was. It was a ride, but we also, um, my sister and I, my older stepsister and I were very close in age and um, really wonderfully adventurous. Although I think she mostly was always dragging me away from my book because I would have just, I would have just read all the, <laughs> oh, I remember the summer I was reading Mary Stewart series and my sister was like, oh my God, you're never going to leave the house. But, you know, we would go out in the woods and like, this is extremely rural and we would um go build forts way yeah. up in you know the holler and like we attempted to dam a creek to build our own swimming pool but we mostly just created a marsh and we 
found uh, um, an old abandoned cabin that had some bags of concrete that we like dragged out of the woods to try to improve our dam. <laughs> there was the time that my dad shot a deer in our garden out the bedroom window and then we were all cleaning it and my sister and I had decided that we wanted to make our own um, buckskin clothing. Oh, and so we, of course, I had a, I had a book. I went to the library. I got a book. And um, what, I know the perfect book. <laughs> I know the perfect book. And what you do is you use the brains to cure the skin. So we like had the brains in a little bag and we put them in the fridge without telling my stepmother. Um, and then we forgot about the skin soaking in water and we forgot about the brains until everything. This maybe isn't a very tasteful story, but let me just oh, yeah. say it was really gross. <laughs> the first time is the experiment. The second time you get it right. You need to do it twice to get it. We never out. got a chance to do it again. <laughs> we had a really similar growing up. I mean, that's, I, I also spent all my time riding my bike and going to the library. It's, it's such a, you know, the library is something that not every, I don't know if every kid gets to have that kind of experience of just disappearing in a library, the local library. It's wonderful. Absolutely. It it was my quiet, peaceful spot. It was a spot where I, 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 even now, like, I just love walking down the rows, like the stacks in the library. Yeah, it's, it's a happy place for me. I went back to my hometown library recently and I was like, I cannot believe these ceilings are not 10,000 feet tall. They used to be so tall and I'm like in a normal building. I don't remember it. Um, so you go to high school. How big was this high school that you went to? I think it was about 2000 students. Um, oh, LaGrange's okay. educational system is really, uh, uh, interesting. And, uh, at the time I, you know, I think at least at the time it was shockingly bad. So, so let me tell you a little bit about LaGrange, Georgia. So I was moving from very rural West Virginia where, not many people had college degrees. The poverty rate was high. When you think about stereotypes of Appalachia, that is where I was. It wasn't like, sometimes people from the DC area tell me that like, I don't know, like they know West Virginia from right over there. I'm like, that's not really where I'm from. Right. But um, so it would fulfill a lot of your stereotypes. Um, and when we moved to Georgia, we were moving, I was moving with my mom and my brother. Um, and we moved to a town that was larger. It was about 25,000 people. And but that town was also struggling economically because the town had been dominated for a hundred years by textile mills, a little mm. less than a hundred, but and they were all owned by the same family, the Callaway family. And the Callaway family, it is they're actually cousins of the Callaway golf people that you might have heard of. Oh, like okay. same, same people. <clears throat> and there were a bunch of mills, but the mills, and you know, this is kind of a classic story, right? The mills had been closing. One by one, the mills had been closing. And so um, when we moved to LaGrange, it was also fairly economically depressed. Um, and in that way, not particularly different from West Virginia, but the the huge glaring difference was race. Because the the part of West Virginia I lived in, and I actually looked at the census numbers a while back to see if I just wasn't aware of people of color, but there was virtually in the census, like, it's just when I lived in Braxton County, West Virginia, it was virtually all non-Hispanic white. Yeah. And so when we moved to LaGrange, it was about 50% black, 50% white. Mm. And it was a town that had a kind of long 
tortured history of 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 racism and racial violence. It had some of the last lynching, or it had a one of the last lynchings in the country, for instance. And when Lagrange was forced to desegregate its schools in the 60s, it followed a pretty typical path for a lot of southern cities. So first off, Lagrange had an academy, which was this Lagrange Academy was this private school that white students went to to avoid desegregated schools. And then it also drew boundary lines such that the the schools um, within LaGrange still remained fairly racially segregated. And it also, and I find this to be very interesting, um, it established sex segregated middle schools, public schools. Wow. So I went to an all girls middle school that was a public school, which I think is really interesting. It's um, not. Is it is it by statute or by just some sort of weird select? No, it well, the name of it was um, I'm trying to remember, but it had girls in it. Girls, Lagrange Girls Junior High, and there was Lagrange Boys Junior High. I don't know if there was a statute. They ended it right after I finished middle school. Um, Where I grew what up, I've been told a... is that it was related to race. That basically, if they had to integrate the schools that they wanted then to separate girls from boys, you know, that this was also a manifestation of racism. But I don't know if that's true. I, I you know, I don't know. I haven't heard of that before uh, in a context of a discussion of race, but uh, that's going to come down to some local community preferences that could have all kinds of weird or some, some sort of reasoning like that, I'm sure. Yeah. So, well, so th the other thing they did, so I moved there, I'm going, I'm going, you know, to these public schools and um, by virtue of where we lived, um, you know, my mom was struggling financially. Um, when I was riding the bus home, I was the, I was the only white kid on the bus. And so I would ride the bus home. I was the only white kid on the bus going to our neighborhood. And then actually there's one other, sorry, I think there were two of us. Um, and then I would get off the bus and I could walk to the local pool and the local pool was three blocks from where my mom lived. And there was not a single black kid there. And I asked where are all of my friends? I think they're my friends, you know, that I've ridden the bus home with. I'm new to this town. And everybody's just looking at me in absolute shock that I would even ask this question. Like sure. it was just unspoken, but they also were segregating all of these facilities at the time because the mills that had been run by the Callaway Foundation mm -hmm. had really, like it was a mill town. They owned and ran almost everything. And the pool was owned by the Callaway Educational Association, the playground, the local dance classes, a kindergarten, the good library. And to be a member of the CEA, you had to be white. You didn't have to have any money. I think it was free. It was certainly low cost. You didn't have to have any money. The rich private, white people so went to the country illegal. club, but you had but, to be white. So it's private. So it's not illegal. It's a small town and it's like probably no community pressure to change it. At the time, the, they eventually, so this segregation remained until the mid nineties when they um, dissolved the Callaway Educational Association and gave all of the facilities to the local college. Um, so, but while I was there, that was the situation. And I would like to claim that I immediately protested, um, that saw this for the horrific injustice that it was. But I was nine when I arrived. And 
you, when you're a kid, you just think that the adults around you know what they're doing and that this is the world, right? And so you just kind of accept this world. Mm. But I did, it did, you know, I will say over the years, it, it slowly started to dawn on me that there were a lot of injustices in this town. Yeah. And when I was in high school, the high school is about 80% black. Um, the NAACP uh, led a lawsuit against our school district saying that we were de facto segregated, which frankly was true. And the Justice Department was intervening uh, to try to desegregate. And my senior year of high school, I was walking through like, and this is in 94, 95. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm walking through all of these lines of, of protesters and Really, it was such a pivotal moment in my life to try while I'm still in it to see what I'm in, right? Like, it's really hard to get a good vantage point. And also, I'm leaving at that moment, right? I'm just about to go to college. And so as I get out and go to college, I'm trying to look back and understand it with a little bit of distance, too. It was it's an interesting place. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, so you're are you looking forward to leaving when it's the oh, end yeah. of school you're looking forward so so you go to Tulane what what took you I know you said you got a full ride there was it did you have a lot of opportunities like that or was it like Tulane really was something about Tulane itself that really just was interesting I had some I applied to all the fancy schools that I'd heard of but never been to in the Northeast and I had a disastrous interview with Yale they were still interviewing people at the time so you know I was a really strong student in a in a frankly you know not high achieving high school that did not send people to Yale I mean most of my friends were pregnant and dropped out of high school so like I was not um, I wasn't in a place that had any real pipeline to colleges at the time, but I, I was like, I have a high SAT score and I've got all A's and I'm going to apply to Yale because I've heard of it. And I went and did the interview and my mom drove me. It was a big deal. I never went to Atlanta, but my mom drove me to Atlanta for the interview. And I, for the first time in my life, rode an elevator to the top of a tall building to like a fancy office with a view where this guy was to interview me. And his first question was, what kind of magazines do you read? And I think if he'd asked me what kind of books I read, it would have been very impressive, right? Because like, I don't know, at that point, I think I'm busy reading like Dubliners by James Joyce. Or so, you know, I always read, I'd have, I knew what a fancy book, a fancy, impressive book was, and I would have delivered. Uh. But magazines, I told him the truth, right? Which is like, my mom got um, ladies magazines, like Good Housekeeping and Red Book, and I read those. And my mom got the National Enquirer, my grandma got the National Enquirer, and I read that. Yeah. And and the truth is, my mom also got Time Magazine and I didn't read it. So frankly, you know, that's not. <laughs> but like, I told this guy the truth, right? Like, so I told the Yale interviewer that I read the National Enquirer. Enquirer, right. And, and it may or may not have. Scribble on his <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't know. I didn't know yeah. what you were supposed to signal. I was just an sure. idiot. Sure. Um, so yeah, but um, I, I did get into Dartmouth, but my mom was like, you don't have winter clothes. You can't afford to come back and forth. And she was right. She was like, you would be so isolated there. Mm. And Tulane offered me a full scholarship. And with I, I worked about 30 hours a week throughout college to pay. They've offered me full tuition. Yeah. And then I worked um, a lot to make up the rest. And it made it feasible to go to you know, <clears throat> get out, right? To like get out of LaGrange and go somewhere else. Right, right. Oh, that's great. So when you are graduating high school, 
and you're going to be going to Tulane. What is it you're wanting to? Oh, yeah, this is when you said you knew what you wanted to be. You wanted to be thirty thousand dollars with health insurance, right? Yeah. Okay. Whatever gets me that. <laughs> well, I am surprised on your Vita. It does not say bachelor's in English. It says bachelor's in economics. So how did that end up happening? Um, well, I, um, well, first of all, and Latin American studies. So when I got to oh. college, I started dating a guy who was a little bit older and he was a Latin American studies major. And I didn't really know, I did not know what I was doing. And I decided to major in what he was majoring in. And I enjoyed the classes, even though I had never traveled to Latin America and I did not speak Spanish, but I, um, started taking Spanish. I did study abroad in Cuba and Mexico. I loved it. I was really interested in it. And then when I was a junior, I um, this is such a kind of classic story. I thought, oh, am I going to get a job with this degree, earning $30,000 a year and having health insurance? Right. I don't know. I don't have any connections. You know, I don't, I don't, like, what am I going to do with this? Right. And Perhaps rather than investigating that more carefully, and I, I was like, I better do something like kind of quote practical. Yeah. And I was under the impression that economics was a, a practical degree. And I had taken some economics classes. Frankly, I'd found them really, um, oh, I shouldn't say, I had not found them super engaging yeah. intellectually, but I had done very well. And I already kind of had like half a econ major. So I finished it. But at the very end, I wrote a thesis. It was on the Cuban economy. Oh. And um, my advisor was Miriam Kispagnoli, who's still around. And I really enjoyed the research. Mm. That's probably the first signal in, in like kind of this whole history I've given you that I, I might be cut out for academia, which is that I super enjoy working diligently and independently on my own. Like I've got whatever that thing is where you have to like, you know, apply your rear to the chair and, and type and think. And like, I, I liked it and I got a lot of really positive feedback on the thesis and that was uh, super encouraging to me. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I was going to get into this. I'm going to wait a little bit, but this, it shows up on your Vita <clears throat> some early a streak of early solo authored stuff at a time that would not have happened in, you know, I would have known in 04, you know, you've got a solo author journal of urban and you're not going to graduate for another year. And so oh, but that's, yeah, that's in my PhD program though. That's what I mean. But even then, yeah. like, uh, I, I don't, I don't feel like that's modal back when we were in grad school, uh, you know, it was not common. It seems more common now these young people are coming out with way too many publications. Uh, but, you know, I would never have gotten a job. But I mean, I, I didn't know anybody that would have gotten done so well before they even graduate. But I'm getting ahead of it. So so you so you graduate and you're what happens? Do you immediately go to grad school? Nope, not quite. I graduate. I am 21 when I graduated. I I skipped a grade way back there in the story. Um, and I am engaged to be married and okay. my fiance is from Texas. He actually kind of fascinatingly, uh, is from prison in Texas. His 
father was a prison warden at a bunch of Texas prisons in Huntsville and Love Lady, Sugarland. Yep. And the kids of the wardens, kids of a lot of the staffs actually grew up within these these prisons, which also operated like farms, or frankly, we can get into this. I'm I would very critically say somewhat like plantations in a very problematic wow. way. Yep. But in any event, um There's Adam a good had grown book up in you might like called Texas Tough. Have you ever seen that book? No. The history of the Texas prison system? No. Yeah. I'll send it to you later. It's really, it's written by this historian at University of Hawaii, but it, the original, you know, until uh, they lost a lawsuit, a uh, case action lawsuit in 1980, a uh, inmate sued the warden for uh, uh, human rights violations and surprisingly lost, uh, mm. the, the, the state lost and um, they went under federal supervision then there was a wave of construction of new prisons in the mid nineties, but they had been using antebellum prisons uh, up until that lawsuit. And um, so, you know, the, anybody like that. So that would have been like, you graduate and you're in college in the late nineties, he would have grown up in the antebellum. He'd have grown up in the antebellum ones. Cause the, the new ones, the big 2200s didn't get built until 95, 93, 94, 96. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're like, so what's happening? So you, you're so I'm graduating from college. My fiance is not going to graduate. He's a carpenter. He'd dropped out a while back. He was a carpenter, bartender. He wanted to move back to Texas. I had not lived in Texas, although Shreveport where I was born is mighty close, but um, I didn't, I didn't know much about the state, but I'd been to Austin and it seemed pretty cool. And so I said, I'll go to Austin. Yeah. And so I, I get a job uh, making spreadsheets for an engineering company. Making 30 move. grand? Yes. And there you Will go. Scott. Dreams oh, come true. What? My dream has come true. I had a, I was basically, frankly, a secretary. Yeah. Um, I had my own little office outside of, you know, the, a big boss man's office. And yeah. I made spreadsheets with like numbers and I could, you know, make them all very pretty. And my boss would you bring in donuts. You went further. You exceeded your dreams. I did. It was, it was amazing. Yep. Actually, I think I might've been earning, now that I think about it, it might've been 29,000, but I was, I was really say, close. You're the, the, you, you coming out making, tw making 30. I, I, I came out making 22. So I was good. I was really, really impressed that you were already hitting your mark. I think it, I think it might've been under 30, but I think it was close. And um, close. I had an absolute immediate, early life crisis, because this was exactly my dream. Like I'm engaged. I, uh, my partner's working productively as a carpenter and uh, he got a job managing a bar in Austin. And I've got a job that gives us health insurance and some stable salary. And we had a cute little house in Hyde park, which wow. you could afford in Austin at the time, which you cannot now, yeah. if, if you have these jobs. Um, and I, I mean, I'm telling you, Scott, it was like day eight of this job, I realized I'd made a terrible mistake and knew nothing about myself whatsoever because it turns out, and I should have known this, I had worked throughout college as a waitress and I'm a great waitress, by the way. Mm -hmm. And I had worked throughout high school also, but it, it turns out that I super duper hate um, being told what to do um, and having to sit there very still and quietly and do it, especially when it's like boring. Like I, I found it just absolutely mundane drudgery, right? Like I, where I'm just spending the whole day, like looking at the clock, it's like nine, it's nine twenty. I was so bored. And I just, I couldn't, 
comprehend that I had finally achieved this level of, of financial stability and yet was so miserable. And I mm -hmm. went to my fiance. I, I, we, we got married pretty quickly after that, but I think he was still my fiance when I was having my crisis. And I was like, I'm, I'm miserable. I don't know what to do. Um, I think maybe I should just go back to school. I'm really good at school. I like school. I succeed at it. And UT Austin has the, you know, they would tell you they have the best Latin American studies program in the country. And I thought I'll go back for that. Oh. So I took a few hours off and went and set in on some graduate, like PhD level classes in Latin American studies, uh, thinking that was what I would apply to. And I just, I was actually kind of turned off by them. It felt a little bit like American imperialism church, where we would just be like, all the problems are American imperialism, which frankly are a lot of the problems, don't get me wrong. But then everybody would just say amen. And it just didn't feel, it didn't feel at the time to me in the places I was, like the type of inquiry I wanted to be engaged in, which was being able to ask questions like, why? Why do we believe this? Why is this true? I felt a little bit like that was off the table. And instead, we just had to know what we all believe together. Yeah. And so since my other degree was in economics and, you know, keep in mind, I'm still 21. I know nothing. I don't really have a, I'm not asking anybody their opinion. I just went and took the GRE and I applied to one and only one program, UT Austin's econ program. And the deal with my husband was if I got in, I would go there and that he, when I finished my PhD would move anywhere I wanted, which is a pretty mm. good deal. And if I didn't, that he would consider moving for another program if I was still miserable. Mm. I don't know why they let me in, Scott. I hope they're not listening to this, but I'm going to tell <laughs> you, um, I had only taken Calc 1. Yeah. I had never taken econometrics. I wonder what your essay was, though. It was about growing up in a holler in West Virginia and the questions that it had inspired in me about the causes and consequences of segregation of poverty. And, you know, it was about income mobility. Um, but does a, does a great essay about coming from a non-traditional background overcome having never seen multivariate calculus? <laughs> like, who was running the, Dan Hammermish was there, right? He was, I don't know who was running admissions in that moment. I've never asked them if they, like, I've never been like, what were you thinking? No, they were like, this is, <laughs> somebody was like, oh, this is, this is obvious. They probably could tell, you know? I mean, that's the, that's the thing is it's like, you're trying to discern all this noise, but they nailed it. You know, they completely nailed it that uh, someone out there is thinking, well, I'm a genius. I called Caitlin Myers. Uh, I misspelled her name, but I, I called it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So you get to UT. And so tell me what, tell me what happens. You get to UT. And I mean, how, what was it like when you get there? Terrifying. It was, yeah. it was a lot like going to college where I found out, you know, I get to college and all these people have all this experience and background that I don't have. And it's, it's just, you know, stranger, stranger in a strange land. And I get to graduate school and just everybody knew so much more than I did. It was, it was overwhelming. And I had, I actually had a lot of shame about what I didn't know. Mm. Um, I think, my real strength there was my ability to hole up for hours and read. And I flip and went and got a calculus book, a linear algebra book, a real analysis book. And I just, I, I worked 
really hard to make up the enormous gaps I had in my math education and not entirely immediately successfully. I mean, that's a lot to make up on your own. Right. And I was also, you know, I, I would ask, um, I would ask friends for help, but I was also not the person you'd want to study with because I've always felt like I had nothing to offer. I didn't understand anything. I was trying to learn it all. And um, the first two times we took our micro and macro comprehensive exams, I I failed both of them. Mm. And so then I had one more shot. I had to pass both of them on the second try. And I spent another summer basically just reading math. (laughs) And I, I think luckily for me, I'm, I'm somebody who can learn that way. And yeah. I think a whole childhood of spending all my time in libraries reading, like that's where I, that's where I did a whole lot of my learning. Um, yeah, you're doing, I did it again. Then you get into your Zen space of just, of just being alone, learning, teaching. Yeah, but I seriously doubt anybody teaching me in that first year pegged me as, uh, you know, likely to be a, a highly successful economist. I, I probably... Um, if you're paying any attention to me, I probably quite rightly looked like I was floundering. Right, right, sure. We have so far followed very similar trajectories. Uh, okay, so you, how are you finding your mentors or advisors at UT? Kind of like, well, what 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 field courses do you end up first sorting into, kind of quickly? Yeah, so. I, I'll tell you the first time, I wasn't even sure my first semester at UT that I should I should be there. Um, I, I was just struggling so much, but I also knew I didn't want to go back and make spreadsheets for engineers. And so I kept struggling. And for me, the moment I actually really started to understand that this was a good place for me was when I took econometrics with Dan Slesnick at UT. Mm. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was good at something. It just, it made sense to me. It clicked. And in particular, I understood for the first time that these questions that I had that drove me about the ways in which where you live and what your resources are shape so much of your life. Like all of a sudden, I saw these methodologies that I could use to ask and answer the questions, right? Because I wanted, what what had caused me to kind of step away from Latin American studies was feeling like I couldn't ask any question. And I thought, I, I can ask a whole lot of questions that are empirical in nature. And here's a set of tools that are really powerful that I could apply to answer them. And I got psyched and I wrote, so in that class, I wrote a paper and he gave us a set of um, predefined possible topics, but it was a paper on housing price differentials and discrimination. And I, I wrote it in a group and, We wrote it as a semester paper with a lot of flaws, but at the end of it, I just couldn't let it go. I could see the flaws. I wanted to fix them. And so I enrolled in urban economics with Paul Wilson and then took that paper and redid it. And that's actually the paper you mentioned that was published in the Journal of Urban Economics, right? So that's a discrimination paper. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's about decomposing um, housing price differentials. You you know, so you'll see housing price differentials between in that paper, it's non-Hispanic black and white populations and really thinking about what fraction of them have to do with um, neighborhood effects and what fraction have to do with seller or discrimination in the market at the time of the transaction. How are you doing that? Are you using one of those walks of blinder things? Uh, No, no. I think it's Oaxaca, by the way, isn't it? I Is that not how he says it? it? Yes. No, you're right. I mean, that's my that's my Latin American Everybody studies coming in. Corrects me, and I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> if he says it like the Mexican state, um, yeah. 
No. So, oh my God, I can't believe you're asking me about my very first paper, Scott. I would have studied if I had known I was going to be asking about a 20 year old paper. But basically what I found was that the American Housing Survey had this special sample that they had conducted that they in the like 80s, I think three times it was like the 80s and early 90s, where they had gone back to the same housing unit. And so you could actually see the ownership, like the race of the owner changing in that housing unit. And they were interviewing all the houses around it. So you could look at how the neighborhood racial composition was changing. Was that what you were doing with the first group of people or in the revision with the second? The revision, not in the first group. In the first group, it was just purely observational one, you know, a couple years of the survey, no, no use of the panel. Cause we, we didn't actually know that the panel structure was available in any year. Nobody had exploited it. It was a little bit buried in a code book. Brilliant design. What'd you find? So you're just using, you're exploiting the within house variation. Yeah, exactly. And neighborhood because you have clusters of houses together. And I have to say, Scott, like any of us who wrote a diff and diff paper 20 years ago, if I went back to it, I am sure I would have a whole bunch of things in mind to kind of revise the the strategy, but it was a pretty standard two-way fixed effects diff and diff. And what I found, two things, as the proportion of houses in a neighborhood owned by Black households increased, the sales price for all houses decreased. Oh. So it was it was evidence of racial composition being viewed yeah. as a disamenity. It's like a continuous diff and diff too. So it's like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. And then I also found like conditional on that for any given house in the neighborhood, conditioning on whatever the racial composition is. If that house is being sold to a Black buyer instead of a white buyer, the Black buyer pays a premium. Man, you're publishing that. You graduate college in 99, you take a year. So like what, 2000? Took a year off. Do you start probably 2001? 2000, 2000. fall 2000, I believe. So you, you, you finish, okay, because you spend, you like work in 99, you're like, I don't want to do it. And then you go in 2000, got it. And then, yeah. so then you start that paper, like what, 02? I think, in- oh gosh, Scott, I'm not even sure. That sounds right. And, and then, so you then, know, there was a publication lag. So I, I started, I revise it. I get through a whole course. Um, Paul Wilson gave me a lot of, um, right. He's at Clemson now. Paul gave me, and I'll mention along the lines of mentors, he was incredibly generous in mm-hmm. just sitting down with me and talking through the paper. And he's one of those people who would read it and give you, and I'm the same, I'm actually the same editor. He'd give you the incredibly marked up like red lines all over, but it made me a better writer. I didn't know how to write an academic paper. So well, he really invested in me at a time when it wasn't even clear that I was going to stay in this program, right? I was floundering and it gave me it it, like, that's what actually I think kind of kept me going um, was this belief that like, I can do it. I do have questions I'm interested in. I can find new things. I just have to figure out how to, you know, get over like kind of the hurdle of the math that I'm lacking. Yeah. 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 But the fortitude, is what I'm just thinking the 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 fortitude of pushing it through uh, to publication in graduate school. That's got to be in, you know a signal to yourself of that you've got you've got stuff that the math never was measuring. It it was, and I you know I think it did it did give me confidence. That was really exciting. Like having that paper accepted for publication was huge. And 
you know, at about that time, I also started taking labor economics classes and I had Steve Trejo and Gerald Ottinger and Dan Hammermesh, and they are mm -hmm. all wonderful labor economists. And I wrote a paper in Steve Trejo's class on the Family Medical Leave Act and mm -hmm. using also some diff and diff methodologies and got really good feedback on that and started working with Dan. And I what what happened, I think, was that I would share these ideas and I would get detailed feedback and encouragement. And so even though I still had like all, I still had, I felt like such an imposter and I don't even know if it was imposter syndrome. I think I was an imposter. Did any of these people know that I like only applied to one school and didn't have a strong math background? Mm -hmm. I don't know, but, um, but they kept encouraging me and they kept giving me good feedback and yeah, it was, it was really exciting. So what was your job market paper about? My job market paper was on consumer discrimination. So, you know, if you think back to Gary Becker's. You're yeah, dealing so you with discrimination for a long time. Keep going. Sorry. Well, I will tell you, I was really interested in, in gender and the economy. And one of the pieces of advice I got, I got, I won't, I won't name names. I think everybody was giving me, uh, I, I think we'll, I think we'll file under the category of a form of tough love, you know, sound advice, but hard to hear. Uh, so a couple pieces of tough love. I was told uh, to lose the accent and not say y'all when oh, I went on the that's, job market. That's, that's, that's rough. Well, so I actually, ref I, I did, refused. I've toned down the accent a little over the years, but I said y'all very liberally. Cause like, I'm not yeah. giving that up. Don't give me a break. Yeah. Don't give me <laughs> but then I was also <laughs> told people. that it, I was advised it was tough to be a woman doing kind of quote women things. Mm. And there probably was truth to that. You know, I think if you look at Claudia Golden's Nobel Prize, that's one of the things everybody's talking about is her fortitude and determination at a time when you you could that was a that was a hard path to take. Yeah. I so I, I think maybe I wasn't quite as confident or quite as brave. And I thought I'm really interested in discrimination. I had all these experiences in LaGrange, Georgia, and I don't know if they are anecdotes about the last town in America being dragged into our post-racial society by its fingernails, or if they are representative of the types of pervasive prejudice and discrimination that might still exist. And, and these are questions for econometrics to my mind, right? And so I, um, I have a series of papers on them. So I have my housing price paper. They're also authored. I did a paper on removal of affirmative action in California. And then my job market paper was on consumer discrimination and how you can measure consumer discrimination, which in many ways is kind of, from a theoretical perspective, the most insidious possible source of discrimination because markets aren't going to compete it away. Right. And it's also really hard to measure. And so what I did was um, collect by hand uh the racial composition of every on-air journalist at every U.S. news station in the top 25 designated market areas. And then Dan Hammermesh very kindly bought Nielsen ratings data for me because I had zero money. Uh, and so he, I, I don't know if it was a big deal to him, but it was a huge deal to me. He was like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll just buy these data for you. And mm -hmm. so I looked at the relationship between the racial composition of on-air journalists and the ratings for the oh markets. Oh my gosh, you did that? That was your idea? Yeah. Where'd you end up publishing that? Uh, I published in one of the BE Press journals, which were brand new at the time and seemed yeah. like a good idea. And nice. I think it's gotten a little forgotten and lost. Yeah, it's, I think you got, I have one of those. I bet we got published at the same time. That's uh, brilliant. 
That's such a great strategy. Wow. Wow. So you, you go to, you, you go to Middlebury. So you graduate and then you've got this like, you know, this incredible uh, success as a grad student and you've got this pipeline. What was the job market like? Um, it was, it was really good. Actually, it was a little bit overwhelming. So I, I had a lot of interviews at the meetings. Um, so many that I had to, to turn some down and cancel some, which was shocking to me. Absolutely shocking. Like I was ready to just take everything I got. I, you know, I suspect that my advisors, um, must've gone to bat for me because it yeah. was such a like encouraging outcome. And I did kind of the usual back in the day, hotel room to hotel room, set of interviews, got some flyouts. But at the very beginning of the process, I had sat down with my husband and talked about what we really wanted. And I love teaching. I like, I really, really love teaching. And I was worried that if I went, I mean, I'm, this sounds presumptuous because I don't even know if I would have gotten like an offer from an R1, but I was worried that if I went to a school that really focused on research, that my passion and the time I put into teaching might be seen as like at best my cute hobby right. and at worst a sign that I'm not intellectually yeah, yeah, yeah. serious. And so I was, I that might've not been fair, but that was like this impression that I had. And so I had right. this impression that if I were to go to one of the liberal arts schools, kind of the, that really value teaching and also encourage research. I thought that could be a good balance for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Middlebury, um, being in a rural area was also very attractive. My husband really was interested in being in a rural area. And so Middlebury had been at the top of my list of all of these schools. And when they made me an offer, I was thrilled. thrilled. Wow. Wow. So I feel like, Caitlin, I remember seeing a website and I'm not, I'm embarrassed to say this. You're going to say, no, that wasn't me. Did you used to have a bunch of chickens? Oh yeah. I still have chickens. And they had funny names. Oh, they still do. Well, tell us, tell me the names of your chickens. Well, here's the problem with being a chicken farmer. So I've always been a chicken farmer. I love chickens. Um, I don't have meat birds anymore, but I can do that also. But I have, I have layers and Scott, I am the I'm the weirdest chicken lady. My chickens, I have chickens that like to be pet and they all run up to me when I come outside and we all sit and we talk. And if I've had a bad day, I like visit my chickens and they lay beautiful eggs, but I do name them all. But the problem with naming chickens is if you have free range chickens, you have got to accept foxes and other predators. I was about to say there, you, you just, you just got to live with the You've got to live with of, death. Of, with death. Yeah. And I will tell you some names. Some of them are no longer with us. Um, I had uh, Tobit, Logit, Hecate, and Peckett. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, this is my favorite chicken name, and credit to my colleague, Paul Summers, who named this chicken, yeah. Heteroskidass Chickity. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so good. That's what I thought. I remembered seeing that, and I was like, this this person is fun. Um, uh, or weird. <laughs> So, uh, so, you know, I, I, I wanted to talk about this. Uh, you're, you said we could talk about this. You, you have tragedy that strikes while you're a professor at, at Middlebury. What can you tell us what happened? Yeah. So I, I get here, um, 
it is, uh, you know, I'm early in this career as an assistant professor. I'm trying to figure out teaching and research. And you know how that was those first couple of years is just such a learning curve. And I've really got my my head down, but I'm also really, I really want to have a family. Um, I really want to have a family. And my husband and I had actually been trying all through grad school. We'd gone through infertility treatment and finally, finally, um, I got pregnant my second year that I was at Middlebury. And so I, I so it's had been a like child. 08. What's it was, that? It's been like 08 or 07. Finn was born in 07. So it would be 06 that I got pregnant. I came here in 2005, got pregnant in 2006. Uh, it's a bold choice, but I'm, you know, women have biological clocks. I wanted to have a family. If the time I, I thought maybe I'd like to have five kids, that's, a thought, but, um, and I had Finn and then a year later was totally surprised. And there is irony here. I will share that I have experienced an unintended pregnancy and all <laughs> of a sudden <laughs> I was pregnant again. And so I had two sons, uh, two years apart. Uh, they were born two years apart, uh, before tenure. And my husband became a stay at home parent to make this work, uh, which I am, I will always be so grateful for. Uh, so he was, uh, he was also a volunteer firefighter. That was his passion. And he bartended a little bit at night to get out of the house, but, um, and, you know, it was a job. So you didn't get yelled at cause you were behind the bar, not in front of it. But, um, but, you know, we were parenting two small children and when our children were two and four, so this is still pre-tenure in 2011, uh, we went down like we did every summer to visit family. And we visited my mom in LaGrange, Georgia and then we were driving to my husband's mom's house, which is in Bucksnort, Tennessee, which is. Yeah, Bucksnort. I used to have a bumper sticker that said Buck Bucksnort, Tennessee. You did not. I swear I went to high school and college. Yeah, you'd you'd take it on I-40. Uh-huh. Yeah, you'd go through it. Yeah, Bucks. How can you not? You'd stop there. You're like, I got to get. Yeah, keep going. Scott, the only two things at that exit are two gas stations and I an know. adult bookstore. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> In my mother-in-law's house. <laughs> she had nothing to do with either of those businesses. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh my gosh. Keep going. So, so yeah, so we were, we were driving with our, in our minivan with our two-year-old and our four-year-old in the back. And we had just left LaGrange. It was right on the Alabama border. We'd already crossed over into Alabama and we were talking about kudzu uh, as one does in the South. And all of a sudden um, everything in my life stopped and um a car i'd actually been turned around saying something to our four-year-old so i didn't see it i only heard my husband who was driving scream and felt the impact but a car crossed the center line and and hit us head on um yeah. on a rural highway and i i remained conscious throughout the entire thing and i i can't quite explain what that level of force feels like and the sense of everything spinning around you. And just you, I, I had such a memory of understanding that it was all changing and I couldn't stop it. And when we came to a stop, um, I, I reached over to my husband fully expecting him to know what to do because he was a first responder. He was a firefighter. He responded to traffic accidents. He, he would know what to do. And, um, and, and he was just gone and I was so 
unbelievable. He was just broken. You know, he wasn't there. And I I have a really vivid recollection of just the fine layer of glass on his lips and his nose where he wasn't breathing. It should have been like moving, brushing off, but he was, he was just gone. And I, I really just wanted to never move again, um, just be there with him. But our kids were in the back seat and they were screaming. Um, and Finn, our four-year-old was screaming, why won't daddy answer me? And I was like, oh my God, I've got to move. And so I got out. Um, the other driver was killed too. And, and the other car, and he was the only person in the car. So it was just me and two injured children. And, uh, do you have a cell phone? Uh, yes. And I called 911 and then I called my mom and I remember just saying like, get here, you know, like the call, no mom wants to get and my mom's like, you know, on her way. And then a random guy in a truck stopped he pulled over and i just handed this poor man i mean it's like a horrible scene right it's horrible and i'm just out of it and i was injured too but i wasn't really aware of that so i'm like bloody and you know I'm, and i'm like i hand him a screaming two-year-old who's fine but i'm trying to get to my four-year-old who's trapped in the car and i just want to comfort him and he's covered in blood and it was just awful and it's like that morning I had delayed our departure so that I could get a paper that had gotten rejected back out to a new journal, send it to the QJE. And it's like an hour later and everything has changed. And I don't care about any of it. I don't care about my papers. I don't care. You know, like everything has changed. It's all come to a stop. And it's just so surreal. Like I, I, we went to the hospital and they stitched uh, my injured sons. He had, uh, head injuries, but luckily they were superficial, just a lot of blood. And they like stitched him up and he had a broken leg and they like put him in a cast. And, you know, then it's like 2 p.m. The accident happened about 930 and at like 2 p.m. They just send us on our way, right? Like you just open the door and walk back out into the bright sunlight. And all of this has happened. And my husband is gone. And I, I just, I thought in that moment that nothing would ever be okay again. And at the same time, when you have kids, you make them dinner. Like there's no option, you know? Uh, Oh goodness. I'm so Sorry for that part of your story. I know it's like a, these things that are definitive parts in your story, they're so complicated because they are, you know, the life-changing things. And if you later learn to love life again, you don't know how to exactly where you put all those things. Um, you know what I, I'll talk about learning to love life again, because I think, I think that's right. And I think for me, for a long time, I was just putting one foot in front of the other. You know, I, I, I went back to work. Middlebury really generously offered to give me a semester leave from teaching. And I, I thought, I thought, let me teach just one class. I would have been teaching two or three that semester. I don't remember because I, I need to be with my kids, but also I need to not be with my kids. Some, I need to go somewhere where I know what to do and how to do it. And my husband's not supposed to be here. And I can like, 
for a split second, maybe not remember all of this other stuff. And that happens for me when I'm teaching, when I'm excited about something. And it happened that semester. And I was really honest with my students. I told them, I mean, imagine that for our first day of class. I'm like six weeks ago, my husband was killed in a horrible car accident. Now I'm going to teach you urban economics. Be kind to me. And they were, and we were kind to each other. And I I said then, and I, I say it now in the face of life's tragedies and fragility, um, there is meaning and comfort to be found in the pursuit of knowledge and ideas, like in, in, in these things that we do as academics, they're not frivolous. They're not superficial. You don't have to feel guilty about loving them. They're part of the human experience and the human condition is to, is to understand each other and make connections and create new knowledge. And so for me coming back to work gave me some meaning and some purpose when everything else just felt wrong. Right. And I was I was grateful for it. And then what I kind of realized as time went on is that you learn to live life in parallel to grief. It doesn't go away. I'm not very fond of phrases like getting over it or overcoming it. Like it's always there. These tragedies are always there. They're they're with me. Right. But also a, a couple years after the accident, I met the most amazing, wonderful man and remarried. And we have a blended Brady Bunch style family. Um, Children have all lost a parent one way or another. uh, And we are so full of joy in our daily lives. And and one of the things that really strikes me about that is that my my husband, Andy, um, lost his father to suicide when, when Andy was eight. And I think there's a certain sense that we have that I find in a lot of people at the point in their lives when they've experienced tragedy, there's a certain perspective and a certain appreciation for when things are good, trying to enjoy those moments Um, that it's not a lesson. I don't want to tell you I got something, you know, there's no lesson. There's no silver lining. A horrible thing happened. And Adam should still be here today. He should have seen his children grow up. Um, I, I, that's never going to be okay, but also I'm happy and his children are happy and we have a lot of joy. That's, that's, um, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to know you and I'm so glad that you would tell me that, uh, appreciate you telling me that. Um, uh, I want to talk. A, a little bit or you know i want to talk about your career um you know i was speaking with one prominent person in abortion policy and they basically said caitlin is the i can't remember how they said it but they just were like caitlin is the future or caitlin is like the leading you know person in this area of contraceptive technology or abortion technology in general and I, I just was wondering, <clears throat> how does that originate? How does it you get, and when does that happen? I was always interested in this question because if, you know, back in grad school, I was interested in gender and the economy. I was interested in discrimination, and I was particularly interested in questions about gender differentials and labor market outcomes and where they come from. And I... 
did focus on it partly because of advice and lower hanging fruit and whatever. And then I got to Middlebury and I wrote some papers that are more, um, you know, about different topics from, from really fruitful collaborations that I benefited from. But all along, this was in my mind, like, this is what I wanted to be doing. And I had started a project on gender differentials in the 60s and 70s with a student just for a, a, a term paper. And as part of that process, I started to realize that the conventional wisdom about the role of contraceptive technology in the 60s and 70s was really perhaps built on incomplete evidence. And that in particular, as I was analyzing data and looking at the effects of the diffusion of the birth control pill, I wasn't seeing strong evidence like I expected that it had played a substantial role in family formation. But everywhere I looked, Roe v. Wade would pop up. And I knew there was some work on the legalization of abortion, but I, I saw this area where I really wanted to dive in to family formation, the age that people had children, got married, had children, and the role that the repeal of abortion bans had had in that, that the subsequent Roe v. Wade decision had had in that, and how that might interplay with laws governing young people's rights to consent to abortion. And so I realized that to complete this project, what I was going to have to do was go back through and reevaluate the coding from earlier papers on the year in which young women gained legal rights to access the contraceptive pill, because that coding was really inconsistent across existing <clears throat> literatures. It sure was. Yeah. And there were no other secondary sources. So what I was going to have to do was dive in and reread or read for the first time, historical annotated statutes, uh, law journals and medical journals interpreting them, newspaper accounts, judicial rulings. And while I was doing that, also assemble for the first time information on the laws that were governing young people's access to abortion as well, which hadn't been done. Yeah. That project- These are parental, uh, parental, what are they called? Uh, involvement laws. But actually, involvement. here's what's interesting, Scott. So in the 60s and 70s, the default was that young people could not consent to abortion services unless if they were yeah. under the age of majority, unless there was an affirmative law. And that kind of flips in the late 70s with a couple Supreme Court decisions, including Danforth and Bellotti. And then by the 80s, it's the default is young people can consent to abortion unless there is a valid parental involvement law. So it kind of flips. Um, but in that early- get a handle on all this. I read a lot. <laughs> you know, we for the listener, me and Caitlin wrote a paper together. And I remember, uh, just think Caitlin did so, you did so much meticulous- uh, research on exactly when abortion clinics closed and not just simply downloaded when um, uh, when they might have uh, lost some sort of particular license and you were like calling places. And I just remember thinking, Caitlin is really not going to be satisfied unless she is 100% sure about the, she cares about the data being correct. That's definitely a characteristic of mine. <laughs> I am really, and it's why I'm slow. I don't have a huge volume of output that and I'm teaching, you know, five classes a year and I got four kids, but um, I am really slow because I really, really want to be sure. 
and being in a place like Middlebury has given me a certain luxury to be slow. Right. Um, I spent a lot of time on that without knowing if this would ever pay off. I just wanted to know the answer, really. Yeah, and in right. fact, the first paper using that legal coding, uh, which was then called The Power of the Pill or The Power of Abortion, uh, is now, it was published as The Power of Abortion Policy. That's actually the paper I was sending back out to the QJE the morning of the accident. So for me, like that, that whole first paper of mine is like all tied up in this moment. And it got rejected at the QJE. And when it came back, I was post-accident and I was slow. My whole, I was like thinking through sludge, everything was slow. Um, but I also realized like it was still important to me. Like when, when you have a moment in life like that and everything has changed, you really reevaluate your priorities. And there were things I was not going to spend any time on, Right. but my research was not one of them. Like I, I cared. And so Kept hammering away at it and long torturous seven year saga short, uh, eventually landed it in the in the JPE, which of course is uh, like a, a big hit for anybody. It was a it was a huge hit for me. I felt like I was kind of a backwater nobody and to publish there was huge. And I've subsequently published a lot about that legal coding um, in the, the Journal of Population Economics. So people who want to use the coding can find all the, the documentation. There's like this ridiculous 70 page appendix uh, that is my notes essentially with all the citations. Wow. Wow. So the story is that the power of the pill was uh, confounded by the power of abortion. abortion yeah. I, I really think the powers, it. sorry, Scott, go on. No, that's what I was going to say. It's, it was always this, it was potentially probably a story of, abortion technology, not oral contraception. I Yes. And um, I, in, in the journal political economy paper, go back and look at earlier evidence of the power of the pill and argue that it, it, it really, it doesn't replicate. Um, yeah. I, I don't see evidence of a large effect of, and I want to be very careful here. I don't see evidence of a large effect of policies that yeah. were specifically governing young unmarried wow. women's rights to consent to the contraceptive pill. It's a very small variation, right? You're you're exploiting sometimes what age you're going to be allowed to get that oral con oral contraception. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it could be that you're you know if you're well beyond that age you are using it to to do these things it's just that you don't have the you don't have the ability to evaluate it you don't have the ability to know that because that particular part of the policy appears to not really matter yes absolutely and so you know one of the things i i want to i want to be very clear on here is that we don't have a natural experiment for the existence of pill technology yeah. the pill right. comes onto the scene in roughly 1960 depending on how you want to measure on the scene, but it appears. Yeah. And if you were, let's say 19 years old and unmarried and living in a state where it wasn't immediately available, that certainly likely impacted your ability to access it. But you could, I think, pretty reasonably predict that as an adult married woman, you were going to have access to this new form of contraception. Totally. And if what's going on is about the decisions we make, like there's still the possibility that this mattered, but the, the power of the pill literature wasn't using variation in the existence of pill technology because you can't. Yeah, it was yeah. using variation in pill policy. And right. for young unmarried women- And that's a subtle difference. 
subtle but important because I, yeah. I think that a lot of the conventional wisdom that's been built on that literature should be reevaluated and softened a bit because what I see in the data is a lot of evidence that the diffusion of the contraceptive pill to young unmarried people fueled the sexual revolution. Mm. But what people were doing was substituting from, in large part, abstinence to pill-protected sex. And the pill has a failure rate under typical use in the first year of about eight or 9% then and now. It actually may have increased unintended pregnancies. Yeah, right. And what mattered for whether those resulted in motherhood at a young age or so-called shotgun marriages was just how available the quote safety valve of abortion was. The The effects of abortion are so clear. You can't, I don't see evidence of an effective pill policy, but legal access to abortion reduced the probability that somebody was a teen mom by about a third. And it wow. reduced the probability of getting married as a teenager by about a fifth. Wow. These are, those are really big effects. Those are huge effects. Right. Right. So what was the response when you were shopping this paper? You must have known it was a top five. I mean, you you could feel it inside you because so many of these pre power papers had been in QJE and so forth. So you you knew I'm sitting on a a really important paper. But what was your what what was your what was the broader community's response to it? Was it hard to overturn that conventional wisdom? I think so. And I'm not sure I ever did. I think a lot of people, um, folks in the field definitely know the paper, but I, I think, and I think folks who, you know, I've heard it's been assigned in like graduate classes and people take the data and they replicate it. And I think if you kind of, what I would say is if you look for yourself, I think what I'm saying is pretty clearly there. There's right. not an obvious effect of pill policy. There's a, there's strong evidence of an effective abortion policy. Yeah. Um, that said, I, it was actually kind of hard to shop. I sent it to the QJ first um, because they had published Martha Bailey's More Power to the Pill. And Larry Katz was the editor who was uh, a Power to the Pill author. And I, I thought, you know, he knows this literature really well. And, um, you know, I got I got a, a helpful set of referee reports and a, a very helpful, quick response, very cordial. But, you know, basically just that it wasn't important enough. Um, not like any specific criticism of the methodology or this isn't right, but just, you know, doesn't merit. It's probably a rejection many of us have gotten yeah. uh, from top journals and and that's okay. We got to have thick skins yeah. and um, sending it to the JPE felt pretty bold, but I also talk about, keep in mind, this is all happening like the year after my husband's death. Yeah. Things that had fallen away that I did not care about were academic prestige. I cared yeah. about the research. I honestly did not. I I was like, the only reason I cared about getting tenure was because I wanted to be able to support my children. <laughs> but, you know, I was kind of like, whatever. I, I don't have the energy to worry about this. So I sent it to the JPE because I believed in it. But also, I don't know that that was a particularly wise decision. And uh, Jim Heckman was the editor. I had never corresponded with him. I had never met him. He did not know me from anybody. And... You know, I've heard lots of horror stories about JPE publication, and I will tell you, mine took seven years to publish, three rounds of reviews, multiple referees brought in. Seven from the R and R. No, from initial publication. Seven. And part of it's yeah, part of it's on me, Scott. I want to be really clear. Part of it's on me. I was slow because I was bogged down with all my life yeah. stuff. Right. So right. it's not just on them; it was on me too. But every time I felt like. Jim Heckman, this giant in our field who I did not know at all, 
who had, he was paying attention. I got these really detailed letters, the really helpful letters, really thoughtful letters. And I felt like he was challenging me in, in really difficult ways. I didn't feel sure throughout the process that I would ultimately land in the JP at all. But I, I do have, so it was nerve wracking, but I have to say what I, I did feel was like grateful that he was paying attention. I, I felt like he was paying attention and that was more than I felt like I had a right to ask from the field. You know, I, I didn't have, I wasn't very confident. Yeah. That, that trait of somebody like him caring about the paper is probably not totally dissimilar from your love of teaching when you think about it, like, you know, cause it's like, you're, you're caring about bringing something into existence, you know, that without yeah. you being there would probably not, not exist or not be as good or, you, you know, you, you know, you're good at it. Yeah. I think um, the best, I think some of the best of us, you know, the best of us academics, not just economists, um, genuinely deeply care about, the knowledge creation and that that's that's like that's really encouraging to me yeah yeah i think i I like about being an academic and i i think it sounds really i know we've got all these political problems and you know within academia and terrible stories we can tell each other about how people are wrong and careers are hurt and i i care about them very deeply and also it gives me a lot of hope that I think so many of us still just really care about the field and the results. Yeah. 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 It, it's, I remember I go to this life coach and, and she says, you know, with these bad events that happen, you have two responses really that are healthy. One is you search for the gift in it, no matter what it is. And the other is you accept it and, yeah. and you move on. And so, you know, and you think like there's a, a way that you could say that where you go, well, I got rejected from QJE. And, and so you find the get and like, but then in a way you must have worked through that with your husband's death too. There was a, what, so, so I don't mean it, you know, that when you're able to transform tragedy into gifts and then also acceptances, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that you love what happened. It just means it left something for you that's that you you feel you can see was a gift what what was it for you or i don't want to maybe it hasn't been or that the the publication process is that well i was just thinking i mean i had a tragic thing happen and and it was so similar to what you said which was these 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 horrible life events these horrible personal events they they can be like a crucible of our careers and our profession and all this stuff that you thought was the most important that defined the career just like gets burned up. All the impurities get burned up. And then, and then what's left is either that's all that was ever there. And in which case a person probably needs to leave because it's not a very satisfying career deep down but then it seemed like for you, you know, you you now know what was important to you. And that was, is am I right? That, that after yeah, I that- feel like I'm in a very good therapy session. Yeah. Scott, you could. Because <laughs> I've only been to like 800 hours of 
Very helpful, Scott. I appreciate it. <laughs> but is that true? I mean, I think it is true. And I will say they come back in. I'm not a perfect, yeah. pure Zen person by any means. Uh, I would say as time goes on, as you get more distance from a tragedy, all of a sudden you still, you know, yeah. you find yourself caring that, you know, your partner left the dirty dishes by the sink instead of putting them in the dishwasher again when that is so trivial, right? Like right. things come back. Um, but I will say it was a moment when I was given, I was forced into a situation where I had to really evaluate what were the important things to me. And I did realize that I, I, I think I have a certain kind of pure love of research. And, yeah. and I also, sure, I want recognition. I want to publish in top journals and all of that. But I kind of realized like I would just keep working on this paper to get it right. And yeah, that yeah. was that was really uh, exciting and encouraging because that's what you need to make a that's career. What your soul needed too. That's what my soul needed. That's what yeah. your soul needed. You know, I mean, everybody's different, and some people don't in their soul need that, and you did. And so, I want to end with one thing. Um, and you know, I'm I, I I am grateful. I find the I lack the moral language to kind of know how to say contradictory things like, you know, what you just described is truly tragic and I'm so sorry for it. And then I also want to say the person that you are that I've only known is just such a beautiful person. Uh, and if that had any, you know, that it, it's gotta have, uh, it's gotta have some of its origins in that, that painful soil. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, I, I want to say, uh, I do love you and I, I love the woman you are and um, you you're so uh, a great person. And so I really uh, don't know how to say it, but I guess that's all I know how to say. Um, I want to end with one thing you have on your Vita, this neat little thing I've never seen anybody do. And I think the reason I've never seen anybody do it is because nobody ever does it. You've got one that says data and dissemination and you have five parts of your Vita. Uh, four of them are solo. And I want you to tell, so it's, and it's like your commitment clear to open science is very obvious. You even kind of alluded to it. But I, so I wanted to know, why are you like that? What is that personality trait that makes you want to say, that makes you want to do that? Because it doesn't seem like, even, it doesn't even seem like, like you could imagine a person doing it and it's a kind of virtue signaling. It, it seems really different with you. It seems like, like, you know, this is my job, data dissemination. Here it is. This is my job. And here's the stuff. And it's just this, it's really unique. It doesn't feel ideological. So I just want to know a little bit about why are you like that? Where'd that come from? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm not, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to have a good answer. Um, but I think there's a few things I could point to. So the first one is my experience attempting to replicate the power of the pill literature and, and my frustrations. And of course, it was an earlier era with different standards, yeah. but my frustrations about how difficult it was to engage the question yeah. um, and to replicate it. And it made me more determined to emphasize replication as a foundation of the scientific method, which is my method in my work. Right. And so... Uh, for instance, my replication packages since then that I always produce are, I think, 
exceptionally clean and, and well-documented. And I teach a course on causal inference at Middlebury. I use your textbook. Thank you, Scott. And <laughs> I teach it through replication for each of the methods we cover. I give the students a well-known paper in economics with a replication wow. package. And the, there's a big assignment where you work through <clears> it. <throat> and I've seen a lot of dirty laundry. Yeah. I've seen some really good work too. I've seen a lot of dirty laundry. And, but let me focus on the good work. Ted Miguel is the, like, he is an economic god of replication. Every time I look into one of like his papers with students, I'm always like, this is so clear. It's so well documented. Mm -hmm. And of course, he's a big proponent of it, but it inspires me to produce wow. similar quality work. And in my field, which I guess is the very niche field of using the tools of causal inference to study the effects of abortion access and abortion policy on people's lives, because that's really where my career has gone yeah. since that JP paper. And I can't do it all. Um, but what I have done has largely involved really painstaking collection of data, a national database on all U.S. abortion facilities, a quarterly survey of appointment availability at those surveys, collecting uh, state health department data to get county level abortions. And I don't think it's in the interest of science and knowledge and public policy if I just hoard the data that I collect and then tell everybody what I found with it, but don't let them, you know, kind of look inside the analysis. So I want my work to be replicable and I want other people to do more work. I and wonder so if that's, I try to get it out there. Well, you know, people will gatekeep their data. I don't, I, and I don't want to judge this finding the right language. Isn't the right, you know, but it's like, you can easily, you can gatekeep the data in a lot of ways that feel that's like rational. Cause you can say, I incurred all the fixed costs. So I'm not going to let you write all the papers, you know, because uh, et cetera. <clears throat> and it's funny, you know, you said it kind of burned away a lot of the things like prestige and stuff. And I think, you know, it seems like you have this humble honesty of getting it right, wanting truth to get out, thinking that, other people looking at it can only be about better answers. And you've lived actually sort of out of compliance with the incentives to just be about yourself, you know? And it's like, it's, uh, it's very inspiring. It's very inspiring. And you're, you're, you're so kind, you know, you're such a kind person in it, you know, the way that you go about it, it's just, it's really great. Um, it's really great that you do that and that you, that you've committed to that. It's interesting. I mean, maybe there's a lot of young people that are like that, but you're class of 94 like me. And so, you know, it's kind of neat to see you being like that. So I want to end on this. Uh, if you could now talk to some young person, maybe they're, uh, you know, come out from like a similar background to you or whatever, you know, this random person, you run into them at a coffee shop and they're starting out. Maybe they just passed their prelims and they had, they had whatever. And uh, you, you get a chance to sit down. Obviously I know you, you'd listen to them a lot. And then, but after you've listened to them and they say, well, you know, what do you wish, you know, what do you wish you had known? What do you think, uh, not what do you wish that you would have known when you were my age, but you know, you're, you've now lived a career. What do you think now really does 
matter and what really doesn't matter that I need to know? I, you know, I, I, like most teachers, I, I, and parents, I give a lot of advice, right? And you're, you're asking me a question that should be a softball. Like yeah. I, uh, I give a lot of advice. What advice would I give? But the, the thing that makes me anxious about giving advice is there are very few universal truths right. for people's lives, you know? So I usually, as if, if I'm offering somebody new in the profession advice, I want to know what they want, but I suppose that's a piece of advice unto itself, which is they need to know that too. Like, why are you doing this? And I'm, I'm asking it as a question from somebody who wasn't entirely sure herself, but that's one of the things I had to figure out in graduate school. Why am I here? It can't just be because I don't want to make spreadsheets for engineers. Yeah. This is too hard for me to not have a better reason than that to do it. Right. I think so in our field, I see increasing stress and anxiety among people who are entering it. And I, I think that's really unfortunate because some of the most creative and rigorous and interesting research comes from the folks who are who are taking risks and pursuing something that just really interests them and that they feel passionate about. And what I would like to do is encourage people to take those risks but what I'm hesitant to do is say that not under, you know, without also acknowledging that not everybody, there's, there's a certain privilege of being able to take it. Some of us have farther to fall than other people. And yeah, so right, it's right. the world I want to live in, but I don't want to pretend that everybody is there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way. That I, That's a great, that's great. Well, Caitlin, I haven't gotten to see you in a long time, so I'm so glad Zoom exists and it's so good to see you. And to get to talk to you, I, I am so appreciative of everything you uh, have become and continue to the kind of person you are. And so thank you for sitting down with me and t telling me your story. Oh my gosh, Scott, you're welcome. This was epic. I hope you're not about to like tweet that this, that Caitlin never shuts up and this is your longest one ever. You can cut out oh. half of it, but can I just say how much I like talking to you? You're so good at drawing things out of people. I'll tell you anything. You are such a lovely, warm person in this service you do to our profession by making sure everybody knows that we're all humans in this profession is, <laughs> is really welcome. And so thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. Well, you have a great, great day and a great week and a great semester.